drugs. Rape. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. Welcome to Drugs Uncut, Scottish Drugs Forum podcast which is a space for informal yet informed conversation on drug-related issues in Scotland. Today we're delighted to have Garth Mullins along. Garth is a drug user activist and award-winning radio documentarian. He's a host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast, a podcast based in British Columbia and Canada where people who use drugs cover the war on drugs as war correspondents. My name's Andy Coffey and I'm joined by my SDF colleagues Austin Smith and Kirsten Horsburgh. We're fresh from our annual drug-related deaths conference yesterday called Connections During Crisis, where we were fortunate enough to have Garth as our keynote speaker discussing the current situation in Canada from the perspective of someone beyond the front line, so to speak. So, welcome everybody. Welcome this morning. Thank you so much. We're so happy to have you here. Um, Certainly it was uh, something that I was really keen to do and to get you over and it's great that you've been able to come over for you know, you're here for a week, yeah, and able to kind of spend some time in Glasgow and see what the situation is here. Here, So we're just really keen to hear from you and what you've found about the place here while you've been in Scotland. And uh, yeah, we've got loads of questions. So oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for yeah. thanks for having us. Thanks for bringing me to the conference yesterday. You guys have a, Andy can read a script way better than I can, so you're already ahead. That was fantastic. Oh, it's at six o'clock this morning. Yeah, uh, well, we, you we nailed made, it for one take, one take. We made him do a rehearsal earlier as well. Well, all the jitters out. All Nicely done. Yeah. yeah, all good. So anyway, how did you find the conference yesterday? What did you, you make of it? Oh, it was great. You know, like I, I always expect to be uh, bored at conferences <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic, you know. Um, I got to meet loads of people, um, and you had lots of drug users from around the area, and even from it seemed like from Dundee and stuff come, and yeah. and that's good when the people who are affected by the thing are at the thing. That's, mm-hmm. I think, one of my first signs of a successful thing. Uh, and then we had a workshop where I was supposed to say, "Here's how you start a drug user union." And it just wound up being a meeting, like almost like what felt to me like a first meeting of a, of a drug user union. Like it, it was exactly what they feel like at home. Uh, and so that was that was really great. Yeah, I, I was in for part of your workshop yesterday and I, it was so nice to see people getting involved. Like uh, obviously Gary was there um, and was able to I take the lead for part of the workshop as well and it was just so nice to see him coming out his shell a bit as well doing that and taking charge of the situation. Oh he was sitting up the front and he had all this to say and I'm like come on come on you can can share this. He's sitting there. I did I was yanking him and he gets up he's like I'm gonna batter you you know. Then he was very happy. I I gave him the marker and he was like brandishing it around the hotel like there's a guy who's gonna be an activist right there. Yeah well by the end of the conference he was thanking everybody for coming. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. great to see him and, take and on chairing that role. other people's yeah. uh, other people's yeah. sessions. It sounds like yeah. that was brilliant. Yeah. So you've been here for just uh, just under a week now, Garth, mm-hmm. and uh, and you uh, obviously working on the Crackdown podcast and um, looking at some some of the issues that are related to, to Scotland uh, at the moment as well. And you know, what are the kind of um, main kind of uh, differences and also similarities that you think you've seen when you've been over here compared to to, to what's happening in Canada right now? Well, you know, I was. Uh, we talked about a month ago, I think, or six weeks ago, is when we first had this idea that, that I would come here, and uh, so I called I called our our friend Cal, who's from here, pretty quick to, to help out, and we started doing the research, and because um, I didn't, first of all, I was just like, what the fuck am I going to tell other people in a place that I can't remember having ever been before, because I have been here before, but I don't recall it very well, um, and and then we did the research, and I started to see the parallels between Vancouver and here. Um, you know, we've had uh, two overdose crises, at least in my lifetime, one in the 90s of strong heroin, one now with fentanyl. Um, you all have kind of had the big crisis around train spotting time, uh, or what they call the train spotting generation. And, and uh, that was a, a, a big HIV outbreak. And we also had that, you know, we had the highest rate of HIV infection in the industrialized world at one point. Um, you know, I, I just I kept seeing these these parallels, and uh, and then I saw the differences too, um, and that y- you've had um, benzodiazepines has been a big part of it, 
uh, for a long time. And Etizalam, or how, how do you how, say how, it? How, yeah, that's how we say it here. Okay. How it, do you normally well, say Well, now it? I'm saying it how you say <laughs> it, so people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. But I, now I can't remember how I'm supposed to say it. Etizolam? No, that yeah. still sounds wrong. Etizolam? <laughs> How would you say it as a man? It is a lamb. Something like, yeah, something like that. I, so we yeah. say it is lamb. It is lamb, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're just getting that now. In fact, between the time when you first contacted me, Kirsten, and when I left, we started to see it enter our drug supply in a big way. We started to pick it up on drug testing. And people in our editorial board of our podcast, we, we have an all drug user editorial board, um, started to, well, we had some overdoses. Um, even at one of our uh, one of our meetings, like we we play the podcast to the community and just let people have people come out and give people a few bucks if they want um, and and uh, listen to the show because lots of people don't have internet connection and can't and can't get it. Um, and right at the beginning, somebody overdosed really badly on um, what turned out to be probably fentanyl and benzos or fentanyl and it's Islam. Um, and it was really scary, you know. I we we got we got him back, but there was hours and hours where he was still just out, just just gone, and um, but breathing. And then the next day, he was still kind of only half there and um, couldn't remember anything from before. So I started putting putting together some stuff from my life, and I realized then that what appeared to me in hindsight to be a big blackout day, I had actually overdosed on a combination of benzos and and uh and opioids i just didn't know until really recently that that was more dangerous like i didn't know what uh drug synergistic effects are you know where you where you pile up a bunch of drugs and it's more than the total of what they would do because i used to think oh you know uh uh like if i if i'd done too much coke i'd be like oh i just adjust the heroin on board and you sort of fine-tuning it like a crossfader that a dj would use you know you got the two turntables and you got the you know you just get the get the beat synced um but uh it's not like that and so i thought when i come here maybe i could learn how you guys are all uh responding to this yeah i think because traditionally it's always been diazepam that had been used in Scotland and we'd had, you know, it's always been the case that benzodiazepines have been used here but it was always diazepam that was the main one and that was always the drug that was, when we looked at the drug related deaths that was, you know, present in people's bodies when they died was diazepam and it's just over this last couple of years where we've really seen the tizzlam come on board and um, there's been like multiple seizures of pill making machines in Scotland as well so people are producing hundreds of thousands of tablets, it's so readily available. Um, and the, I think visibly the level of intoxication certainly that you see on the streets is much higher now than it used to be. Yeah. People are using such large numbers. But I remember um, when I was in Portugal for the International Harm Reduction Conference and speaking with Jane Buxton at the mm -hmm. time from Canada um, and her mentioning that they think that they're now starting to see a tizzlam over in your area uh, and it, it being in the fentanyl. And I was just like, wow, that's going to be really really awful um so thankfully we haven't seen fentanyl here yet but it would be naive to think that we won't ever um, you so gotta we're prepare obviously, yeah. yeah looking over to you guys and thinking wow you know if we are getting fentanyl on top of everything else that's going yeah. on but i mean that's a good example of that stuff about user activism or being in touch with people that, that are using who can speak openly about their using their experience because Kirsten's right, there's, there's a, the historical use of benzos in Scotland, but in eight, some areas of Scotland previously, I'm going back a few years, but not many years, they, they weren't even recorded in post-mortem toxicology because they weren't seen, seen as relevant. They were commonly used, and as you were talking about, that kind of interaction isn't understand in a kind of research level. So the only people that are doing that interaction at any scale are people who are using substances in, in the street. So all of a sudden, this new benzo, which isn't chemically very different or pharmaceutically very different in terms of if it was being prescribed, but it can be prescribed abroad, uh, it'd be prescribed in a very similar way to, to Valium or whatever. So actually the danger of it is something that's that's been reported by users and, and, and it's commonly amongst deaths. So people will say that there was nothing unusual about that, that person's use on that day. They were using all the benzos which they've been using and they were using heroin at the same time and maybe their methadone prescription or whatever. So it's not, it's, in terms of drug groups, it's not an unusual combination, but the effect definitely seems to be palpably different. And part of that is around 
as Kirsten says, the local manufacturer of uh, Tesla's uh, tablets. Well, that's a that's a result of policy, I think. Yeah, and how cheap they are. Yeah, mm -hmm. we we talked to somebody yesterday who was on uh, some kind of benzo prescription, you know, through the pharmacy and the doctor, and then when they cut everybody off, you know, they cut lots of people off, they made it much tighter. Uh, she couldn't get them anymore. And uh, so she was into the illegal market and then she was dealing fake benzos herself yeah. and then went to jail for it. So she's got the whole policy gamut. You know, she's been hit like a hammer with every bad policy from the prescribing policies to the criminal justice, to the jail, to everything. Yeah. To, and criminalized all the way through, you know. Yeah. And she's come out the other end, but um, it's, it's, you, you see the same thing in Vancouver. You see the same processes. You know, they, they started really clamping down on oxycodone prescribing and driving everyone into heroin and all that and then there's fake oxycodones and yeah for sure no there's it's definitely no coincidence that that tightening up of di uh, diazepam prescribing then led to uh, mass numbers of, of Tesla. I, I, and entirely predictably yeah people are using a medication like that long term they're, they're going to source it elsewhere yeah. Yeah. yeah and i worked in a few areas where actually um there was this thing uh, that people couldn't get started on a methadone prescription until their urine drug tests were negative for benzodiazepines. So it was like, are you actually yeah. serious? So yeah, that was a really that obviously doesn't happen in all areas, but certainly in some areas that was that was the protocol. So I was struck by the similarity, well, the parallels of methadone too. We have a, a difficulty in BC where people aren't getting a kind of methadone that is working for them. So half of the people, you know, we have 25, 30,000 people on, on OAT or, or whatever you call it here, you know, suboxone methadone, that yeah. sort of stuff. Most people on methadone and um, the methadone's weak. And so a lot of people are dope sick halfway through the day and you have under prescribing here for, it sounds like 50% of the people. And so you're setting people up again, you know, for they have to top up, they have to use if, if people aren't getting prescribed methadone properly. I was wondering, Garth, if you could um, maybe uh, give a brief, brief explanation of how people maybe access uh, OAT or OST uh, in Canada, uh, as opposed to, say, in, in Scotland, where it would be a, a national health service to be prescribed it, to be able to access it in, in Scotland free of charge. Um, what, how, how would someone access it if they were in Canada? Um, we have... We have universal health care as well, but not quite the same way as the UK. So we always, in North America, always mix in a big dose of private sector market forces. Like, uh, you, you guys came up with Adam Smith, but we really just keep embracing him. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, our, our um, system is full of private practitioners who just bill the state. And so I, I go to a private methadone clinic uh, that charges you extra fees every month. Um, in some cases, the dole will pay part of that, or or now all of it, because we forced them to. Um, through through drug user activism, we forced them not to take a private clinic to take food money out of your dole check and to pay the pay the yeah. clinic. Um, and and then if you're working, if you're not on the dole, uh, then you you're paying you know um, I don't know like uh, forty pound a month or something like that to the to the clinic. And uh, that's where the doctor is. The doctor writes you your prescription. You get your prescription from the pharmacy, um, just like here, I guess. And uh, the pharmacy, uh, if you're on the dole, then that get, gets covered. Um, but if you're not, then you're you're paying out of pocket. You know, if you're working, or or if your or if your work has a, you know, extended benefits, health benefits, um, then then it pays for it. But yeah, a lot of people are are struggling with that, um, having to pay for for those medications. And are you paying for the medication or are you paying for the pharmacy dispensing? Oh, both. It? So yeah. you're paying for both. Yeah. And then what are the sort of restrictions there? Like, do, do people have to go to the pharmacy every day or is there quite a bit of um, flexibility? No, with that? they're very strict about okay. it. You, you, you have to mostly have to go every day. There's a few people if you can generate, if you can, you know, piss them gallons of clean urine, then you can prove that you're not doing anything else. They'll trust you enough to, to let you t take it away from the pharmacy. You know, so I have uh, carries, they call it, you know, to, to, to bring with me. I have them with me from my pharmacy in, in Vancouver, but um, yeah. it's, it's hard to do. So it's actually quite difficult for us to get to conferences, you know, because yeah. a lot of people in, 
in the drug user union do try to go to different conferences. Also, in the United States, most of us can't get across the border, yeah. uh, so we can't go there. But um, that's one of the big difficulties is getting your methadone to go yeah. or take away, you know. It's different across Scotland. There's some areas that are a bit more flexible than others um, regarding that kind of supervision stuff. So, um, you know, some areas will give you a week's supply away. Some will mm. make sure that you're there every day. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite variable. They tell us that yeah. they don't want us to. They don't. They say that you know people would divert it and sell it. Yeah. Um, but that's how I started methadone. Is I bought it off the street, and so I think there's actually positive um, consequences to having a illegal methadone mm. market. Until yeah. and unless they make methadone so easy um, to get that you don't, that there's no value in selling it. That, and so if they want to stop a, a legal market of anything, just lower the barriers to getting on it. Yeah. Like in, I don't know if they have, they have a little illegal market in Portugal, I was talking about it. But you just walk up to the methadone van there and you can start yeah. like that moment. And here you have to wait. Sometimes we, well, we heard from Gary or somebody six weeks. I can't remember who that was now. But yeah. three weeks is common. Well, even more than that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it could be months yeah. in some areas. Yeah. And then I, I was also surprised because um, there's lots of, or the recovery services that are around, you can't be on methadone for some of them, or you have to be on a low dose. So there's there was all those folks in the city center engagement group talking about how they were struggling to get under a certain dose so they could access a certain service. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I'm not, exactly entirely sure which services that is but mm. I definitely hear that there are certain services that you can only access if you're on a certain amount of methadone but there are other services that you certainly can't access if you appear intoxicated as well so obviously there's issues there when we we're just talking there about the amount of benzos that people are using and you know that that's quite a common state for people to yeah. be in so yeah it's difficult and I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to probably just jump subject and I'm sure we'll come back to the methadone stuff as well. But I think what's most frustrating for me, and you know that there have been lots of conversations here in Glasgow in particular about the need for a safer injecting facility, mm -hmm. drug consumption room, whatever we want to call it. Um, and being in this office is probably one of the most frustrating things I find because I'll show you just before you leave outside our window, just next to where we're sitting, there's a lane. Um, and it's you, commonly used. You should take me out there with the mics. It'll yeah, be a good oh, scene yeah. for your podcast. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely go and have a look and see if there's been any activity there. But that's a lot of people are using that to inject in the lane. Yeah. So we can literally look out the window mm -hmm. and see people injecting in public. And there's no way to lower down a bucket with clean rigs. That's what I anything. said. We'll yeah. need to start like a naloxone supply yeah, out yeah, the window yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So And there has been um, cases where we've gone down with naloxone kits. There's been kits, three or four times, certainly, that I've been down and other colleagues have been down to go and check that people are alive in the lane and it's just such an awful situation. I remember looking out the window one day and there was a guy who'd been using, it was absolutely pouring rain um, and he'd used his drugs and then there was like a sort of soaking wet magazine that was sitting on one of the pallets, the one of the wooden pallets that was down there and he started flicking through the pages of this soaking wet magazine and I was like, oh, it just made me feel absolutely horrific that there was nowhere for that guy to go and just, you know, mm. So yeah, I mean that's that's another subject altogether as well. The, the need certainly for for injecting facilities. And you know, Caso, the drug user group in Portugal, yeah. they uh, they pay somebody out at this broken down old machine shed where people go uh, to use. That's out in the outskirts of Porto. Uh, they pay her to just have harm reduction supplies and clean up a little bit and and like not really a full time job. She's a user of the space too, but yeah. You know, she sort of has like a little bit of responsibility to just improve it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. She's very proud to do it. You know, she's quite. She was showing us around. She's quite good. I, I wonder if some third sector money could ever do that for someone there. It's sort of like a stopgap between that and a safe injection space. Yeah. So we have like. Um people doing outreach but it's like workers and services mm -hmm. doing the outreach stuff but we definitely are lacking like people who use drugs actually doing that mm -hmm. uh, work as well I would love to see that here yeah. I mean I, I I don't have no proof of this but I have always felt I think it was when I first heard about the Chicago Recovery Alliance mm -hmm. uh, and Dan Biggs work in Chicago you realise that where there are no ser services and there's no expectation that somebody's going to provide then people who can work together as in, you know, a drug users union or whatever, or some kind of completely informal structure, a network of friends or acquaintances or whatever, take on these responsibilities of 
passing on naloxone, supplying naloxone through networks or whatever. Whereas, and I think you saw this the other night when, when we had a meeting in the church here in Glasgow, mm. that you, you see people on the point, on that, the very point of saying, oh, we could have a network in the city centre, like if we could just, we could supply, I wonder who would do that. And of course the people who are saying that are actually the people who could do it. Mm. Um, but they just don't see that they could take on that peer role because there are so many services. And saying, oh, I wonder what service could do that, but actually... It could come up from the kind of grassroots thing. Yeah, and it's a culture thing yeah. here yeah, as well, I think isn't that's, it? People have never been supported yeah. or no. encouraged to do it. Or frankly empowered. Yeah, you guys should seize the moment. They're yeah. ready. Like yeah. yesterday, if I wasn't, if I was from here, I would have just said, "What's the name of our group? Yeah. What yeah. are we calling it? Let's do this now." We would have just stayed in the room a little, you know, extra yeah. hour, yeah. written the mission statement, and said, "Hello, we just had the first meeting of the the Glasgow yeah. Drug Users Union or yeah. whatever." But it's like not for me to, to do something yeah. like that. But you could really tell that people were just ready for that. Yeah. You know? And then you say, we'll see you next week at whatever location and just start a, a continuing thing, you know? Yeah. Well, certainly Jason, who you've also met as well as one of my colleagues at SDF, uh, he's been really supportive with that, the Glasgow's uh, the City Centre engagement group. So We should just explain what the City Centre engagement group is for, for people who yeah. are listening and don't know. So that is a weekly um, drop-in kind of uh, um, area, uh, a safe space that's held in the City Centre at two different locations, one at the Lodging House Mission one week and one at the Tron Church in Buchanan Street on another week. And basically, from what I understand, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a safe space where uh, people who currently use drugs can come along and uh, discuss topics, uh, issues, challenges uh, with their peers and, and also uh, with the support of um, colleagues at SDF, uh, Waverly Care and Turning Point Scotland as well. Um, and so basically that's on every week. And um, yeah, so it's a safe space where, where you know, issues relating to perhaps their prescription um, services, you know, basically just getting issues off their chest. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a, a good uh, informal space where, where conversations between people um, who use drugs is taking place at the moment. And I think the important part of that group is, and the thing that Jason always highlights as well, is that the staff might be there to allow the group to take place by providing the venue and support and stuff but they don't set any kind of agenda at all. So it's very much led by the people who come to the group and what they want to talk about. So, um, so it sounds like that could be like a fertile ground for, for you know, activism, energy action. Definitely. And uh, you can tell Jason really wants this to happen. Yeah. And he is exactly like this person from Vancouver named Anne Livingston, who played this role sort of just adjacent to, ally to drug users to help start up the, yeah. the Vancouver area network of drug users. And she actually was the one who taught me, like, always use the flip chart up, like, right on the thing. And, like, I was just following her, her script when I was doing my thing yesterday. And the fact that you have that and people like Gary, who's ready to jump in, and Martin and a few people like that, you just, that's, that's the stuff that we only had weeks or months in. You know, you've already identified sort of the, the cadre or the leadership or the people who can come forward. So you're ready to do it, you know. I was wondering actually, so you, you gave the workshop yesterday where you were talking about um, drug user activism and, and how that can potentially come about. I wonder if you'd be able to give like a couple of que uh, quick brief points just on perhaps what those ground rock uh, basics that need to be in place uh, for that. Uh, well, I guess the, the, the thing I said is all you need is to put a poster up and gather people together and start talking about the issues we were already together yesterday and talking about the issues. So it was it was supposed to be a meeting about how to do it, but it just turned into it, yeah. <laughs> the thing itself, you know? So you just had a, I had a big flip chart at the front and I started saying, what, what are people, what are people dealing with? And, you know, we heard about um, all the problems with methadone. That was a big, big one. And it is back home too. You know, it felt like, I felt like it was in a meeting of the BC Association of People on Methadone. It was really striking. And then also, like at home, child apprehensions from, from moms who, who, you know, the social has come to pay a call because someone's phoned or they're using drugs or whatever. Um, uh, policing, uh, there's a few others I'm trying to remember. I wrote, I wrote them all down on those big papers. And um, yeah, uh, just the contaminated drug supply, the, you know, the feeling of loss of uh, 
and uh, homelessness, fragmentation of services. Um, you know how there's little bits and pieces here, but it, and and how austerity has has, um, especially a lot of the users of my generation remember when things were a little bit better funded, and and how there's been a rollback um, from that time. So, yeah, I. I really, it really was very striking how much like a, a drug user union meeting that was yesterday. And that's how I can really tell that it's, it's ready to happen here. Um, and someone like Jason shouldn't feel too gun shy about nudging it into that, like that inch over the line into, into beginning because he's legit, you know, he's, he's lived it. He knows what's going on. People respect him. You can tell there's a good, there's a good thing happening there. And, and you have you have people like uh, like the the group around the city center engagement uh, group that are are ready to jump in. Yeah. So just going back to that thing that you mentioned about the similarities with methadone in particular, do you feel like there's the same level of stigma towards methadone in BC? Yeah, I th I think it depends on where you are, but but there is a lot of stigma here. I definitely noticed that. Um, I think that the stigma has lightened a little in Vancouver in the context of the crisis and that we're, you know, into prescribing heroin, albeit on a very small kind of pilot basis, just like you are. But uh, it's, it's funny that the stigma of methadone would persist when you're talking about prescribing something that most people consider a lot more stronger and controversial. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's around here a lot. And you know, it was around in drug users, or st still is in a lot of drug users in Canada too, because, you know, we call it liquid handcuffs. Yeah. And um, it's shorthand, but when you pull it all apart, you realize you're handcuffed by the regulations and the organization of the methadone system, not by the something to do with the chemical compound, yeah. you know. Um, and I think everybody dreams of just putting the nightmare behind you, and you think of the nightmare as the drugs, but the nightmare is actually the criminalization of you, the human being, and the the risks of the contaminated drug supply. So it's like a policy nightmare, but in the moment it's hard to reflect in that level of abstraction. So you're just like, I wish all this shit was away from me and methadone gets wrapped up in that. Um, and so I think it, it really, like if you don't ever come together with other drug users and talk about this stuff, you never get to reflect on it yourself. So drug user union is good to change the world, but it's also good for the individual drug user union member because we get to, figure things out. I've had loads of revelations of things I didn't realize were going on in my life because of being able to talk about it with other people. And lots and lots of drug users, they may be in small networks or by themselves, but there's a big degree of isolation in which you use and, and you don't really get to think about the structures that are controlling your life very much. You know, you, you pick up the blame that's all around you in society. Like, you've made these bad choices. You could make the choice to stop. You know, recovery is just one day away. And so you just you kind of internalize that. Maybe you don't think that consciously, but it gets into your skin, you know. And, uh, and so you're, not, you're, you're thinking that things are, are your own fault, you know, until you get that moment of reflection. And so we carry a lot of that internalized stigma and a lot of and methadone is a great transporter of that. It seems like in in Scotland anyway. There, yeah, there is a lot of stigma around it. I think um, so. Yesterday, as part of the the, the conference, we relaunched our Stop the Death initiative. Um, so uh, with that, we had a new website, StopTheDeaths.com, which everyone should go along to check out. You can find out ways that you can take part. Um, but we decided this year to kind of have a bit of a focus and a bit of a theme and, and the theme this year we decided was treatment as, and the reason for that was just because it has become such an issue within, within Scotland and, and as Garth is describing further afield. I wonder Austin if you could expand on that slightly uh, in regards to yeah, treatment. Yeah. Well I mean I think, I, I think the decision was made I suppose it's a fairly easy decision to make about where we should go in terms of the stop the death stuff because uh, treatment's been the focus uh, of a, a lot of criticism and, and justified and understandable, a lot of it. Uh, but a lot of ill-informed comment. So a bit like methadone getting the blame, the whole treatment system getting the blame for, you know, for instance, the, the, the crisis we have around deaths. And also the fact that, you know, maybe half the people who die have methadone in their system. Yeah. And that's reported, so. Yeah, that guy David Rames on the radio was yeah, talking yeah. that shit yesterday, and it's just like, <laughs> Uh, why, why are we going to let this myth 
be broadcast, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You're and not but, on the BBC now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of that, and a lot of uh, concern around uh, a kind of abstinence agenda, a recovery agenda that was defined officially until recently, but certainly culturally around abstinence. And how much of the problem we have under under prescribing is about pushing people to to some a better place and a better place is a lower dose because a lower dose is neither zero and zeros the aim of treatment um, and how for some people that's not only dangerous but but lethal um, and and brings into disrepute uh, if you like uh, treatment in general because of its its lack its apparent lack of success and so on so it's to reframe that whole thing to say. There is bad practice, there's, ba there's bad treatment in effect, um, but it's not to do with the substance you might be prescribed, it's around, the, as you say, the regime. Mm -hmm. And also, away from the deaths, I suppose, part of the thing about methadone, it's how disempowering it is in terms of decisions being made about your dose that you maybe don't uh, have input to, about daily pickup, and about notions that, well, you could never work. You know, so these are things that we, you know, are held to be true mm -hmm. in Scotland. You know, there's a group of people. You will be in poverty. You won't. You won't work. Um, you you won't function in the way other people do. Um, and this all becomes linked to, to the methadone rather than saying here's yeah. a here's a platform of stability from which you might work or you may you know participate in stuff. Yeah. So we're talking about that earlier. So that's the the your exclusion yeah. from taking part in group work because you're on a certain dose. Yeah. Which doesn't even take account your own tolerance, you know. So, so that dose might, mm -hmm. you know, be a, be an underdose for you. Yeah, and just a general sense that people are often made to feel like they're a, a failure if they're on a methadone prescription. And uh, like I think that's, you know, one of the things that crops up a lot. And I, you know, almost being seen as not being somebody that's moving on in their life if I they're still on a prescription or whatever, and I think it's just trying to get away from some of that narrative a lot of the time is, is one of the most difficult things. Plus, we quite often make it very difficult for people to access services, um, and then once people have access services, we often make it quite difficult for them to stay in services as well. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are definitely lots of issues there, and I've certainly had experience of working in a treatment service and seen that firsthand as well, how difficult that can be uh, for people. But... Um, yeah, there's loads of different improvements certainly that we, we need to be making in that side of things too. Can I ask a question about naloxone, just to change the subject for a minute? <laughs> How did you get on with your experience of accessing naloxone in Glasgow? Yeah, it was, it was not bad, you know, just for not knowing uh, what to do or where to go, we just sort of went to some chemists and they, there was a little bit of, we don't really know what that is at first. Oh, right, okay. Um, and then there was, when they figured it out, they were like, well, we don't have it. Maybe these guys do. And we went to the second one and they didn't, but they'd heard of it. And then we went to the third one and, and we got there. Uh, we got there fine, you yeah. know, and so they, it was good. You know, I'm not a EU citizen or a UK citizen. And um, they took information from me, uh, like name, date of birth and and uh, local address and stuff. And then they gave me a naloxone kit, but it, it maybe took half an hour. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Because uh, I think that's the thing, like it is easily accessible, but you kind of need to know where to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what you've just highlighted because not all areas across Scotland have pharmacies actually supplying it either. So Glasgow's actually quite one of the better areas for that, but not all the pharmacies do it. So it's only the ones really that provide injecting equipment that also do naloxone. So that's probably why you were and batted around a bit first before to get it. But you know, I first came across um, naloxone in the 90s when people were overdosing in the first crisis, overdose crisis that I was in. And uh, you know, the guys in the ambulance would roll up and stick them and you know, he'd be back up. And we thought, whoa, what's that? Well, how do we get some? We need that. Yeah. And it took us 20 years to get some. Mm -hmm. And people like Dan Big from the Chicago yeah. Recovery Alliance, the late Dan Big, he used to just come to conferences with a big garbage bag full of naloxone. <laughs> he was a mule of, of Narcan and, and hand them. And so we actually had them uh, illegally for a, a while. And our, our editorial board member, Dean Wilson, used to train people on how to use it illegally. And the cops came into one of his trainings once and said, you, you could get it, you could go to jail for this. And he's like, go on and try. And the, the cop yeah. left, you know. And, and then the health authority came in and took took our naloxone away from us one time. This is t like 2011 or something like that. At that time, you guys were already well into your a national 
Um, it was two, awesome 2011 when ours started. Right? Oh yeah. yeah, well you're at the beginning, right? And yeah. we were still we were still getting ours taken away by the cops, and, and so we you know, had all these meetings and things with the various health officials and people in charge. Eventually got it by prescription. So the first time I was able to legally get it, I went to a training where they trained us, but then they didn't have them to give to us, and so we <laughs> waited, and <laughs> and then. Uh, you know, eventually we got it by prescription and we just, we broke open the program so there's no prescription and, and we can train. Like I train people at home. I have a big box in my flat of, you know, 30 naloxone kits. And it's the same, <clears throat> you don't need a prescription so you don't need to take name and information. But it is the same as here. It's for drug users and, and people who know drug users and the family and people who are likely to witness an overdose. But I interpret that in BC, which has 4.5 million people and there's, uh, you know, there's a couple of people die every day in BC, and there's and there's many many more non-fatal overdoses. I consider anyone in that province to yeah. be likely to witness an overdose. Yeah, and totally, so I think totally everybody should have it, and I'll train anybody on how to do it. And yeah. we we put the nice PowerPoint up and walk them through it in a classroom. We trained university lecturers and stuff, um, or just someone in the parking lot in five minutes. You yeah, know. yours is still more flexible than ours, though, because. Um, even though ours changed a bit in 2015, so the regulations changed a bit. So naloxone here is still a prescription-only medicine, but mm. we can supply it without a physical prescription. But you, it's only drug services that can actually supply it, um, or if you're linked to a drug service, so you met the pure naloxone guys, mm. um, they're absolutely phenomenal. Um, but they can only supply it because they're linked to the drug service. Um, so they wouldn't, for instance, you know, if you know, so like the city centre engagement group guys, for instance, right. wouldn't be able to legally do uh, that, like go about with a bag and just be supplying it to anyone because it still all has to be recorded. So there are definitely still restrictions here that we have that you don't have. And what, the other thing I liked about uh, your naloxone provision as well is the kit that you gave me yesterday mm. is clipped to my bag um, and it's so visible and I, I just like how people use it in that way so it's you know here people are still feel like they have to kind of hide their kits and um, are not so kind of loud and proud about carrying naloxone as it seems to be over over your way so I think that could definitely improve here as well like people feeling a bit more proud about actually having naloxone on them and um, there are issues there with um, still the lack of knowledge among a lot of police that are working on the street about naloxone and despite us trying for seven years um, to uh, continue to get that message out it's still a challenge um, so yeah there are uh, definite things that I'd like to inherit from your programs. Well, well I might be running ahead of our program a little bit in saying that I consider everybody in the province to be no we do we okay. do as well like so I, I'll deliver training sessions we'll deliver training and say um, specifically if we're delivering in Glasgow, for instance, like if you are walking around Glasgow city centre, you are a person who's likely to witness an overdose. Yeah. So you should be carrying the lock zone or you should at least know where you can access it, which pharmacies you can run into to grab it. Because mm. a lot of the pharmacies here, their staff have run out into the street to administer in the lock zone as well. So. Mm. Yeah, that's what she said to me in the pharmacy. She's, she's like, waits for me to, you know, there's a queue and the pe yeah. people go up and I said, oh, can I get some naloxone? And she says, can you come into this little private side room? And so I go in and then they come around. There's, and this is, this is the little, this is the junkie box they have in the pharmacy, right? So everybody else, regular counter looks like a regular chemist. And then there's a side through the frosted doors. Then there's bulletproof glass yeah, and cameras cool. and all this. Like, <laughs> so it's like, oh, I know, I know this room. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> and there's a little slot where you put the put the needles in for the. Uh, so, um, but anyway, so she said, "Well, are are you? Do you need to use it right now?" And I said, uh, "Hopefully not." I said, "Well, certainly not on myself, but I would be screaming if there was somebody on the street. I wouldn't have politely waited. I mean, I'm a Canadian, but even not that polite, you know, to do that." So. Uh, yeah, but we, you know, we had some laughs and everything. She said, are you on holiday here? And, um, I said, no, uh, we're here for work. And, and, uh, she, and, and I said, where should I go on holiday? And the one in the back says, anywhere, but here, go anywhere. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Welcome. Yeah. <to> Glasgow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Anyway, yeah, I mean, we got it, but I, I could see from the drug users I've talked to that people are reluctant to carry it around. But people who aren't uh, targets of the police every day, like they're the little yellow boxes. I have one in my in my pocket, right? Yeah. So if you if you're a, a guy who has a little suit jacket with that that 
what do you call that breast pocket? You just stick yeah. it in there like a pen or something like that. Or I mean, it's just a really inconvenient size to be able to show publicly. But if there's some way that people who aren't targets of the police can model this, like can I don't know, put some electricians tape around it and and make a make a fob or something. Yeah. You guys could make a little cool naloxone holster that you would yeah. wild west style give to something that that everyone could see that and then and then it would help other people feel like oh we know what that is we've seen it yeah. around here. well we've got um, intranasal naloxone's been licensed over here that's uh, good yeah. now. Uh, there's no area, well Highland are uh, starting to use the Nixoid that's the the branded name mm. of the one that we've got here. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that because uh, that'll be a much develops. smaller. Uh, so it's smaller. So maybe there's opportunity then to create some kind little of necklace little or something case. like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So. yeah. I saw actually a thing in the media the other day, and there was one of the doctors in another country wearing it around her neck. So it's mm. maybe an idea. Could be uh, attached to the stop the death lanyards. Oh, or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I'd, uh, you could have T-shirts that say like naloxone packing teacher or naloxone yeah. packing electrician or yeah. You know. Okay, so well, I guess um, if we're kind of tying up, I just want to quickly ask about uh, safer injection facilities since it's so topical for Absolutely. Glasgow. Um, so obviously, um, you'll have seen the situation in Glasgow. Did you manage to go to any sites where people have oh, yeah. been injecting in public yeah, yeah. yet? So. So, I mean, from your perspective... We even went with an MP to um, Thewlis. Oh, Alison, yeah. excellent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so she's been really supportive about this yeah. agenda as yeah, well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, her constituency um, has a lot of issues mm -hmm. with the public injecting side of it as well. So, um, so in your opinion, <laughs> does Glasgow need a safer injecting facility? Well, it depends. Last year you had... Uh, 1,320? Is that 1,187? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. In Scotland so, as a whole. Yeah. In Scotland as, as a whole, sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah, so um, if people are happy to see that double or maybe double and a half, then no, don't bother. But if you, if you want to see that number not rise as fast or maybe stabilize, then absolutely. And more than one all yeah. over the place. I mean... There are 5,000 safe injection sites. In the, there are 5,000 safe consumption sites in this country for, for booze, yeah. you know. And those are, those are more disruptive to a neighborhood than a safe consumption site for drugs. Because when people are drunk, they kind of fight and throw up and it's, it's loud and they're going late at night and everybody knows what it's like to live near a pub and it's much quieter to live near a safe consumption site. People in Canada and North America sometimes do and they don't know, you know. And it's something that often, you know, a lot, a lot of the argument, I guess, is not in my backyard, you know, I'm, I don't want to be finding needles or anything like that, but actually they're, they're always going to be situated in a place where public injecting is taking place anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So there's already um, discarded, um, often discarded uh, uh, drug injecting litter and um, already in that place. So it's not really a kind of an argument I kind of see, see for, you know. Yeah. And I think when when people hear the idea at first and they have no idea how a facility that like that looks or runs. I mean, I remember I did a, like a travel fellowship and I went over to Sydney and spent some time in the injecting centre over there. And when I came back to feed back to various politicians and all sorts of people that could be decision makers on the subject, um, and I showed them a video of the Sydney centre. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to name who it was that said it, but um, they were of the opinion that there would be like some kind of perspex glass up between uh, the staff and the people using the service, and that it would like be like that room in the chemist, basically, that right, you've just right. described, yeah. and that you know it would be very separate. And so they were quite um, shocked, I think, by the way that this facilities did actually run. And obviously, the Sydney one's very clinical, and some of them are, uh, you know, mm. not the same. Um, and are much less kind of formal than that, but still, it's just I think people's initial perceptions of what that sort of facility is like, and it's just dispelling a lot of those myths is one of the issues. And see, see, it's one of the easiest subjects to argue for because every time somebody brings up something against them, there's always something that you can sensibly argue. Well, you know, this would solve that problem actually. So all the problems that people raise can generally be solved by the introduction of a safer injecting facility. So, um, yeah, I've found it quite an easy one to argue for. And the ones that are just staunchly against it are the ones that are staunchly against any kind of drug taking in, in the first place. So, 
yeah. I thought it was quite interesting about the latest episode on the crackdown, um, which was the cost of cereal. Yeah. Which was about. Um, wow, you really cereal. listened fast. We put that out like yesterday. Yeah, I, think, I was listening like, to it this morning <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, um, We're dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> and in that, uh, you guys visited Sister Space and talking about. Um, so it's a, a female only uh, supervised injection facility. And that just. The way that it was described and the way that it operated just showed the potential for a safer drug consumption facility and how that could operate in, in the various forms. You know, it doesn't need to necessarily be a, a fully medicalised 100% kind of yeah, thing. Totally. Uh, th this, there was a much more holistic element to it than to, to that space yeah. in, in particular, which I think just shows the variety of service that you could deliver. Yeah. That was the first one I'd specifically heard of that was a women's only one as well. It was interesting to hear about it. I mean, I know there probably are others, but it was the first one I'd heard a bit so. more of. Is that, that the only one? Yeah, we know that there was one in Mexico briefly. We know oh, yeah, somebody yeah. works there, but they shut it down. And, um, you know, there's sort of working on stuff there and right now too, but I don't know of any other ones. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, our first, our, our first official one was, was Insight, and it's very clinical. Mm -hmm. I think that was intentional because it was the first one in North America. It was really controversial, and so I think they wanted to show the world, uh, look, this isn't a place where people hang out and have an easy time. Like for all those people who are like, this is wrong, this is bad. They wanted to see something that had like not punishment, but but let's get serious here, yeah. kind yeah. of in there, you know. It's not the most comfortable. Yeah. So you you might want to. I don't know. You've probably thought about that a little bit, but it's just like because there's this narrative of you're just coddling drug users, um, which. You know, which I guess they were trying to fight with architecture a little bit on on Insight, but before Insight, we had to open them illegally first. We had to just use civil disobedience and open unsanctioned safe injection sites, and then we had to do that again in 2016 as well, um, because from 2003 to 2016 there was one in North America, and it was Insight. And even though we had this overdose crisis blooming the Tory government wouldn't let us do anything. In fact, they were trying all that time to shut down Insight. So we had to just do civil disobedience again and, and in, put up tents in, in, the, in the alley and, and that. And, um, and eventually the government was kind of embarrassed into finding a way to, to, to make those allowable as well. And then since, since 2016, they've kind of proliferated around Canada. But in Toronto, they had to do it illegally first as well uh, in a park. And now there's two jurisdictions, Alberta and Ontario, that have elected sort of right-wing populist premiers that are trying to um, fearmonger and, and shut down these, these places. So we still really have a, a lot of people who don't like them. And now they're being politically organized by the right. So it's, uh, you know, there's, I guess I felt the parallel here too when yeah. I heard the same arguments for, um, oh, isn't this just condoning drug taking and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Felt very familiar here. And I, I do get a bit frustrated with the conversations that you're always having to say, right, well, what else can it do? What else can it do? Mm -hmm. So, like, people are not just happy with the argument that, look, this is a safe space where we can stop people dying. Well, well what else can it do? Can it get people into treatment? Can it stop this? Can it... I remember speaking to one guy about it and, um, you know, saying all the benefits that have been shown in other countries. Yeah, but uh, it's not going to stop people uh, selling drugs, is it? Oh, it's like for God's sake! Like, well, so like, that's an argument for legalized regular yeah, drug supply, yeah, exactly, right there. He's, he just needs to move on. <laughs> yeah. you know? This is just uh, yeah. triage here. But it's almost like people then—they're not happy with just being what it is. It has to provide forty million other things as well. Yeah. The biggest historical mistake was playing into that agenda. The agenda has always been around you can openly justify, or one of the best ways to win a political argument uh, is to justify harm reduction in terms of something else. And something else usually being treatment towards mm. uh, abstinence, yeah. and 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 in doing that, and this is part of the stigma we have around methadone, it's by playing that game, you undermine harm reduction because as soon as, soon as you, you're then held to, to account. So the question we were asked, for instance, by an MP, a Scottish MP in, in London, uh, was about how many people go through it and inject. Uh, an injecting facility and are referred to another service. Yeah. And, and the next question is how many of them engage and how, yeah, how yeah. many of them are absent a year later and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is just the same argument at home yeah. in Canada too. And I just say, um, what other health service or any service can you point to that has a hundred percent effectiveness rate in what it sets out to do? Reverse overdoses and keep people alive. There's no, never a fatality in a safe injection yeah. site in Canada. 
there's no other thing that, that is like that, that has a hundred percent success rate like that. I, and it's such a, a measurable outcome. Is that, that's, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the thing that's, yeah. that they're somehow not good enough because they're 100%. Yeah. And then if you have, if you want to take it to local property owners and business people, then it reduces public uh, drug taking and all of that. And that's, that's what they want to see. So you can, you can even show the statistics, the amount of people who come in and use it are not, are people are potentially not using in a way that the business people will, will not like, you know. Like the local small business tyrant has a big voice in, in Canada, and so they're, they're always on about that. Yeah. Okay, so any final messages that you want to give us for Scotland going forward? Uh, I, I wish I could stay here longer. I, we I wish, wish I, you could I, stay I, longer. I wish I really, like, <laughs> I have to go home on Sunday, and I'm not, I'm not ready to, you know. Um, uh, and it'll take me weeks, probably until we make the episode in October, to really figure out what I've learned and, and what's happened and everything like that. Um, but you're the, the people who, who are, um, the people like uh, Martin and Gary and their friends and, and that network just made me feel so um, at home here. I was really struck by how, how quick that, that was. And, and so did you all. <laughs> and so I just, uh, you know, I was just grateful for that. And um, I've, I love curry chips. Uh, so we don't have them at home uh, so we try I, we try to like make them but it doesn't work so I, I'm glad to be here and so if I was here too much longer I would eat too much curry chips and it wouldn't be good for me and and pizza crunch yeah so. I heard you had a pizza crunch <laughs> yeah, yeah, a delicacy yeah. from uh, from Scotland the, yeah. even Cal doesn't eat that you know he's like oh I don't know yeah. <laughs> any uh, favorite Scottish slang while you've been here as well I mean you've been trying to pull out a few lines yeah I I, I actually something Jason said and I don't right. know if it's Scottish slang or just his own oh, yeah. invention yeah. But, um, you know, he was talking to Gary and uh, Gary was saying, well, you know, I, I don't like to carry my naloxone because of the police. And he says, the police are good, but they're not that good. They can't see inside your bag, but they can see when you're cutting about the tune like the Pink Panther. You know, <laughs> we just I just after that happened, I said to Lisa and Callie I said someone was running a tape recorder during that. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, maybe that'll be the name of your Scottish we, actually, episode. Actually, we, we, when we were walking here, I was trying it out. I said, no one will know what we're yeah. talking about, you know. The intrigue, though, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you have any good suggestions, I still don't know. But okay, sometimes great. we don't know. We didn't know the Some... last one until a day before what we were going to yeah. call it. Stuff. Sure. I was recording the narration for the episode about Sister Space while I was here. Right. Some of it. And so I was in a few different places in Ireland and then here where we basically have to take pillows and stuff and make a little studio, a you know, a little yeah. fort. Yeah. And, um, and so they, they all sound a little bit different. So it's unfortunate when you're traveling because you can't match them up. But you guys will probably learn to yeah, make your pillow I'm forts. Sure. Uh, sure. And it's kind of yeah. fun. I suggest taking pictures of it. People on Twitter seem to really like the pillow forts. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. But we're so grateful to you for being here and all the work that you've done while you've been here. We've certainly made good use of your time. So can't wait to listen to the podcast uh, that you put together from here. But I just I'm honored to get to witness what I hope is the beginning of something to just yeah. be around I, I wasn't for the beginning of of the Vancouver area network of drug users I was just actually too fucked up like I didn't so I, I can't remember and I wasn't consistently at things yeah. and, but um, to be here if, if if this turns into something which I really feel like it could I would just yeah. be really great to remember that I got to see yeah. the beginning. And know? a founding member of the Glasgow uh, Drug Show. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But... <laughs> yeah. Honorary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please send me the t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you very much, Garth, for coming in this morning for our first official podcast episode. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I went all right. Yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. So if you liked uh, the podcast, then hit subscribe and, uh, and follow along and we'll have another one through for you soon. So, thank you.